Amen. You know a church is fired up when you need it this cold in here for us to be okay. Uh, well, it's good to be back with y'all tonight. We, uh, we're going to be covering three chapters tonight. So uh, chapters three, four, and five. I drove in from Dallas for, uh, for this event, and in the morning uh, I'll be in Baton Rouge, but I was not going to miss this. Our title tonight, Original Standard, Extraordinary Expansion. Original Standard, Extraordinary Expansion. So you know what we do now is we prevail upon... Jennifer to read three chapters. So it will be Second Chronicles chapter three, and you're going to read through chapter five. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. He began building on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. The foundation Solomon laid for building the temple of God was 60 cubits long and 20 cubits wide, using the cubit of the old standard. The portico at the front of the temple was 20 cubits long across the width of the building and 20 cubits high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. He paneled the main hall with pine and covered it with fine gold and decorated it with palm tree and chain designs. He adorned the temple with precious stones. And the gold he used was gold of Carvim. He overlaid the ceiling beams, door frames, walls, and doors of the temple with gold. And he carved cherubim on the walls. He built the most holy place. It links corresponding to the widths of the temple, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide. He overlaid the inside with 600 talents of fine gold. The gold nails weighed 50 shekels. He also overlaid the upper parts with gold. In the most holy place, he made a pair of sculptured cherubim, overlaid them with gold. The total wingspan of the cherubim was 20 cubits. One wing of the first cherubim was five cubits long and touched the temple wall, while its other wing, also five cubits long, touched the wing of the other cherubim. Similarly, one wing of the second cherubim was five cubits long and touched the other temple wall, and its other wing, also five cubits long, touched the wing of the first cherubim. The wings of the cherubim extended 20 cubits. They stood on their feet facing the main hall. He made the curtain of blue, purple, and crimson yarn and fine linen with cherubim worked into it. In the front of the temple, he made two pillars, which together were 35 cubits long, each with a capital on top measuring five cubits. He made interwoven chains and put them on top of the pillars. He also made 100 pomegranates and attached them to the chains. He erected the pillars in front of the temple, one to the south and one to the north. The one to the south he named Jochen, and the other one to the north, Boaz. He made a bronze altar, 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 10 cubits high. He made the sea of cast metal, circular in shape, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim, and 5 cubits, and five cubits high. It took a line of 30 cubits to measure around it. Below the rim, figures of bulls encircled it, ten to cubit. 
the bulls were cast in two rows in one piece with the seed. The seed stood on twelve bulls, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The seed rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were towards the center. It was a handbreadth in thickness, and its rim was like the rim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It held three thousand baths. Then he made ten basins for washing and placed five on the south side and five on the north. In them the things to be used for the burnt offerings were rinsed, but the seed was to be used by the priest for washing. He made ten gold lampstands according to the specifications for them and placed them in the temple, five on the south and five on the north. He made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the south and five on the north. He also made a hundred gold sprinkling bowls. He made the courtyard of the priests and the large court and the doors for the court and overlaid the doors with bronze. He placed the sea on the south side and the southeast corner. He also made the pots and shovels and sprinkling bowls. So Purim finished the work he had undertaken for King Solomon in the temple of God. The two pillars, the two bowls shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two sets of network decorating the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the 400 pomegranates for the two set of networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network, decorating the bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars. You stand with your basins, the sea and the 12 bowls under it, the pots, shovels, meat forks, and all related articles, all the objects that Hiram Abi made for the King Solomon for the temple of the Lord were polished bronze. The king had them cast in clay molds in the plain of the Jordan between Succoth and Zarephan. All these things that Solomon made amounted to so much that the weight of the bronze was not determined. Solomon also made the furnishings that were in God's temple, the golden altar, the tables on which the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold with their lamps to burn in front of the inner sanctuary as prescribed, the gold floral work and lamps and tongs that were solid gold, the pure gold wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and censers, and the gold doors of the temple, the inner doors to the most holy place and the doors of the main hall. When all the work Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and all the furnishings he had placed them in the treasuries of God's temple. Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. And all the men of Israel came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the Levites took up the ark and they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests who were Levites carried them. Up and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and covered the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends extended from the ark and could be seen in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. 
and they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jedithan, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests surrounding trumpets. The trumpeteers and the singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voice voices and praise to the Lord and saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Come on, are we in for a good night or what? Look, I'm out of practice. I don't, as unaccustomed to public speaking as I am, I got nervous and I, I made a fatal error. We didn't pray to start. Is there an anointed man of God who will stand up and pray for us? Mighty God, we thank you, Father, for the words tonight, mighty God. Lord God, we ask you to lift your hand be on this meeting, Lord. God, we ask that this, this word would move us, God, that it wouldn't just be an ordinary Monday, God. But God, it would be a Monday where we go on a holy war. So, Father, we ask you, God, that you would fill our pastors, fill our brothers with your word, Lord. Most of all, anoint us to receive it and put it into practice in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we have a slight protocol contra, uh, differences this evening. So we started with Miss Jennifer reading, but our faithful reader of the scroll is going to pick up with the first couple of verses this evening. Oh, He's going to read verse 1 and 2 for us. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jephthah site, the place David, the place provided by David. He began building on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. All right, you guys remember Psalm 139 last week? Yes. God is everywhere. He's in the highest heavens and the lowest depths. But we have specific focal points. Somebody remember that? Yes. Yeah. Where his presence is chosen to be made manifest. Where his name is tangible. Where he wants men to be able to recognize his presence. Something very interesting that is in this passage. Ezra is connecting several different things all at once in a single verse. You guys remember hearing about Moriah in weeks past? Yeah. We're going to hand out a few scriptures and start to unpack what Ezra is telling us. Gabe Stevens, Genesis 22. Cody, if you would get Genesis 22, verse 4. Then Genesis 22, 13 through 14 is going to go to Brandon. We'll pick up after that. Go ahead and read when you get it. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Moriah. Keep reading. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Thanks. Ezra opens up this chapter with Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. It's almost like he's trying to draw to mind previous events in their current context. What's going on right here in Solomon's day 
he uses the same verbiage that is used to describe this whole temple region, but it dates back to Genesis. Now, what starts off in verse 2 as a region, I want you to notice it becomes ever more specific throughout the Bible. Nothing the Bible ever tells you is incorrect. It just becomes more illuminated over time. Never is something set aside as wrong and replaced by something new. Muslims do that. That's abrogation. But what the Bible does do is a region becomes a specific place. A specific place becomes a specific mountain. Who had Genesis 22 in verse 4? I do. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. So... On the third day, somebody say third day. Third day. Man, we need some third day thinking, don't we? Everything gets clearer after three days. He sets out for a region, but on the third day, he lifts up his head towards the heavens, and he sees what the Bible calls the place. Man, if you're ever walking in the direction the Lord tells you to go, but you just don't know what to do, you keep looking up. You will find the place you're supposed to stand. This is a place. It's not just a region. But it's a place within the region God sent him for. This is how all of the Christian walk works. You set out in the general direction God is showing you and the specifics show up along the way. Who's got Genesis 22, 13, and 14? I got it. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Wow. On the mountain of the Lord. After the divine intervention within the region of Moriah and at a specific place, it was called the mountain of the Lord. Not a mountain range. Not a mountain region. The mountain. Which is interesting because there's other mountains called the mountain of the Lord. What was Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai called? Mountain of the Lord. This is to bring to your mind special attention that a plan would unfold in the coming days on this specific mountain. The revelation of Abraham progressed from a region to a place to a specific mountain. That would be the focal point of human history and the nation of Israel. Josephus affirms this understanding as normative in Jesus' time. You want to see what Josephus says? Yes. We have that on the slide? No. I'll read it to you. Josephus, writing about this mountain in Jesus' time, says, Accordingly, he commanded him to carry him to the mountain Moriah. It's known as the mountain Moriah in Jesus' time. And to build an altar and offer him for a burnt offering upon it, for that this would be best manifest his religious dispensation, disposition toward him if he preferred what was pleasing to God before the preservation of his own son. Moriah was a region. It's known as a region, but it is also a specific site. Within that region, there is a specific mountain that is called the Mountain of Moriah. And it was identified from the time of Abraham as the focal point in human history. Want to hand out... One more passage 
And that's 2 Samuel 24, 16 through 18. Paul Rosales, you get that one. No, 2 Samuel 24, verses 16 through 18. What we're illustrating to you as we add to this is that general revelation becomes far more specific the more of it you get. (laughs) When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. Come on. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. Mm. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Saints, what we're doing on these evenings is we're working to gain a better understanding of the word, increase a personal hunger for the word, and also understand biblical imagery. Ezra's done something special for us. So we know that these regions are important, but who has ever been reading about Moriah or reading about another mountain range? And you have no idea how that plays into the rest of biblical theology. Ezra does something very specific. In Chronicles, he ties the events that we just read about in Samuel to the events that happened with Abraham. Consider what some of those events are that he is bringing to our mind in a single verse. We have a promised son that was a unique son, the one and only son, the one that Abraham was longing for, that was, spiritually speaking, sacrificed there. God provided in that moment that there would be a substitute, a substitutionary offering. But it was with great pain. It was a father who's giving something up. The next thing it draws to our mind is David who stopped a plague upon God's people. And he did it by sacrifice on this specific mountain. Even goes so far as to say, let it rest upon me and my family. Well, it definitely did rest upon him and his family. Jesus bore the brunt of our sins so the plague might be stopped. This specific spot is attached to Abraham's moment with the Lord and David's moment with the Lord. Ezra links these events in a way that is without ambiguity. It gives us a kind of singular thread that is weaving through the word, that is painting a picture about a son that we will be longing for, that we will see in the coming days. Ezra is letting us know that not only is the location, but the covenants with David and Abraham that the events and the sacrifice and the result for us, the people of God, and specifically Israel, are all tied to this one focal point. Now, we're about to go into a son of David who's going to build upon this focal point. He's going to grow from this focal point. Moriah and Aruna's threshing floor and the temple are all specifically synonymous with the location that Solomon is about to work in. The place that was provided by the Lord to sacrifice a loved Son that would deliver us from plague and display God's sanctity, display his Hashem, display his character and body of work to the entire world. Now, let's let's take a minute and take a deep breath. When you are thinking about Abraham, you could say that Abraham fulfilled Genesis 22. But did he? 
Yes and no. He did take his son up there. He did receive revelation there. But in another kind of way, David fulfills the prophecy of Genesis 22. Everybody jumps ahead to Christ, but David stands up as a king of Israel, a shepherd of his people. He says, let the sin fall on me. Did the plague stop? Yes, it, it did. But does that mean that God's done with that scripture? No, it yet further points to another son of David. Don't you love biblical prophecy? Fulfillment is like when you can see the pattern starting to unfold. It doesn't mean that it's completed. The promises to Abraham, promises to David, and to Jesus, they don't replace each other. They are progressive, and they display God's faithfulness to a singular plan that he's had from the beginning of the biblical narrative. And the longer the narrative goes on, the more you understand it. Man, do you want to get deeper into the narrative? Hey, who remembers Chronicles placement in the Tanakh? Is it the first book? No. What is it? So out of our book of Chronicles that the Greeks split into one and two, but are really one, this is the last book that you have prior to being introduced to Matthew. And what covenants are being drawn to your mind? What is it that we're crying out for? This is prepping. This is the Holy Spirit using this for everything that would come afterwards. All right, let's dig into the narrative. Linton with verse 2. He began building on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Wow, the fourth year of his reign. Notice that Solomon did not begin to build the temple when his father commissioned him in chapter 28 of 1 Chronicles. This is the fourth year of his reign. Although the materials were provided and the plans were delivered by God through David, through Samuel, there needed to be a period of preparation for the massive undertaking. Come on. You guys remember that there was an overlap between David's death and Solomon's reign? Yes. That David was alive while Solomon was reigning? This spiritually equates to the provisions of the first advent of Jesus' ministry on earth followed by the completion of the temple in his people at his return. But practically, this period of time, about four years, relates to your discipleship process. Oh, no. Do you want to hear practically? Or would you rather just stick in the ethereal? Practical. Look, four years means we're not ready when we're called or commissioned by God. We have to prove faithful. Solomon was young and inexperienced when David gave him his charge. But what was working in Solomon's benefit is that David was with him before he would begin to build the temple. You guys want to hear some scriptures on that? As Justin hands out these scriptures, when the Lord appears to Solomon, what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. Wisdom, understanding. And you think that like the Matrix, he just got it downloaded. But you're missing a four-year process in his life. When God blesses you with wisdom and understanding, he does it through an accelerated path called discipleship. Yeah. All right, so uh, Rick, you get 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. Uh, Steve Thomas, you're going to get 1 Timothy 3, 5 through 6. Spencer, you're going to get Numbers 12, 7. Caleb, you get Proverbs 13, 17 through 18. Cho, you're going to get Matthew 25, 21. Asad, Luke 16, 10 through 12. Timo, way in the back. 1 Corinthians 
4.17. JJ, you get Colossians 1, 7 through 8. Hayes, you get Colossians 4, 7, just verse 7. And uh, that Colossians 1 passage, that's just verse 7 as well. And then uh, Ibrahim, you get Colossians 4, Eben. 17. Just a few scriptures. Just a few. <laughs> oh, these are fun. They're easy. You, y'all are not, y'all didn't go scripture light in my absence, no. did you? I was in another church recently and I said, hey, start reading in Colossians 1. And they read Colossians 1, 1 and they stop. And I'm looking around. I'd been away from LCM too long. And I was like, why'd you stop? He said, well, you said Colossians 1. I said, son, that's a chapter. Why are you fighting to read as little as possible? Read until you're stopped. You know, by the end of it, though, they were reading chapters. Who's got Corinthians 4? Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Saints, when you've been entrusted with something that is precious, like building the house of God, we have to prove faithful. Listen, these are apostles that turn the world upside down, and they're saying we have to prove faithful as men who've been entrusted with something. Have you been entrusted with something precious in this house? (laughs) As we go to 1 Timothy 3, remember, the apostles spent three and a half years with Jesus. That's that's roughly equivalent to the four years Solomon spent before he began building. He was learning. Now, they didn't just spend those three and a half years. They stayed in Jerusalem ten years before anyone left practicing their building. Say, oh, but there are guys like the Apostle Paul. Study the timeline of his life and tell me how long it was before he began building the temple of God. You can receive a call or a commission in a single day. You can feel it burning in your heart and you can cry, I'm ready. You're never ready as fast as you would like to be. Actually, you proving faithful allows God's character to be built in you, which is what he is interested in displaying to the world. Let's do 1 Timothy 3 and verse 5. Wow. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. You are not allowed to build God's house, to manage God's house, if you're a recent convert. Now you get to decide, what does that mean? If I go to Miss Tippy and say, cut my hair short, does that mean short like Rob's, or does that mean short like, like mine? <laughs> or short like Marlon's? What does that mean? Well, in its biblical narrative, these are, these are years, years. If we're going to display God's name on earth, how long does it take to become an engineer? How long does it take to become a doctor? How long does it take to become so many things? Why do we think in a six weeks course you are ready to go take the world? Well, that might be why we have so many running God's house that are not fit. I mean, they're fit for YouTube. They're fit for Facebook because nobody gets to actually see their life. But they're not fit to manage God's people. It's required of us that we prove faithful. He's got Numbers 12, 7. But 
this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Man, this was said in Numbers. You guys know how long it took for Moses to get to this point? <laughs> it took him years, decades, four decades to get to this point. Wow. And he became faithful in all my house. Look, Michael Hutchison preached a fantastic message called Call, Commission, Cost. What happens is you hear the call like Moses did. That turns into a commission as it's built inside of you, but it results in a cost that you have to pay for that commission. Woo. Moses learned how to pay the cost before he became the boss. <laughs> and that's not a Snoop Dogg kind of cost. That is a Holy Ghost masculinity <laughs> discipleship cost. Got Who's got Proverbs 13, 17 through 18? Get it. A messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Mm. Pause for just a moment here. So we have Moses that we just covered. Man, is there a calling quite like that? I mean, we can look at the Apostle Paul. We can look at Elijah himself. None of those guys did what Moses did. And despite how much he was called, he had to prove faithful for God to be able to say that he was faithful. Listen, you don't get born again or get hired on and have a track record. A track record is formed over time. That's how you know somebody's dependable. Now, a wicked messenger falls into trouble. But a trustworthy envoy brings healing. Well, what makes an envoy trustworthy? Demonstrable deeds over time. Messengers that are running around bring about wickedness and trouble. When you just take something and run with it and have no understanding, you're not benefiting anyone, I promise. What's that next verse? Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. Mm. But whoever heeds reproof is honored. Let's just say it simply. None of us would like to be destroyed. I would like to receive honor from the Lord. But more pertinently, I would prefer that your words, that your instruction, that your message doesn't bring about destruction to other people because you weren't patient enough to learn how to do it right. There's honor that is available in this house because we're being trained into something more than we are today. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hey, where's Matthew 25, 21? Notice that the master progresses as the servant progresses in what he puts at his, uh, in his charge. He always starts with a few things, and if you do well with it, he adds more. Anybody in here want to be somebody's first surgery? No. No. <laughs> no. What do you do if you got to go have a surgery? You're looking for somebody who's done this and done it well. Okay. We need to be able to see a track record. God is even looking for a track record in you. That's what discipleship is. If you have a hard time when corrected while you are young in your discipleship, then how correctable will you be when you're 30 years into your ministry? Almost no chance. And the damage can be high. But we know you guys, you love discipleship. Who had Luke 16? Hey, how do you know that you can be trusted with little? Well, under the stewardship of discipleship, your disciplers, your fathers, hand you very little, 
whether it's a little correction or a little responsibility or a little advice, and they see what you do with it. And that over time proves what you will do with much. Ask yourself, why have I, why have I not been given much? Well, ask yourself what you've been doing with the little. Keep going. This applies just as much in worldly wealth as it does with spiritual wealth. The riches of the kingdom will not be given to you if you can't handle the process of mining out those riches of the kingdom. Yeah, Who's on. got 1 Corinthians 4.17? For this reason I am sending to you Timothy. Oh, Paul's oh, right there. Oh, Timo! Timo, read the next four words for me and just read them like a son of this house. My son whom I love. Yeah! Come on, saints, in biblical culture, when we say son, we're not talking about who your biological donor was. We're speaking about whom you are like. <laughs> Timothy was a man that Paul was able to say, whether it's in physical property, like the last verse, or it's in a spiritual sense. He is faithful in all God's house. He loves him and he represents him anywhere that he goes. Keep reading, Timothy. Saints, Timothy, we have no idea how old he is, but we do know that he spent enough time around Paul that for him to show up is like Paul showed up, that he will remind you of my way of life. Saints, a way of life is not something that you obtain the moment that you're saved. No, It's not something you obtain from an inheritance, not even a glorious one in the saints. It's something that must be obtained by proving faithful as you walk. So much so that he's able to say in a broad spectrum, not in this teaching he will show you what I teach, he will remind you of my very way of life. When I wake up in the morning, when I study, when I pray, what my life is like. Saints, that's our desire. Yeah. That's our desire for everyone in this room, that we might be a son who is able to accomplish that. Amen. Hey, who's got Colossians 1? Colossians 1, verse 7. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ, you know why Paul could say that about Epaphras? Because he had seen his internet broadcast. They had been on Team Microsoft. He got Zoom. He got it right up. No, you can't call somebody a faithful minister if you haven't seen them in situations others are unfaithful. This guy wrestled in prayer. This guy fought for the purposes of God. And so he goes down in history as somebody who has proven Faithful, and that's what you're going to do too. Yeah. Amen. Colossians 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Look, this is the goal of discipleship. Not that you'll have a name like Tychicus, but that you'll be elevated to a dear brother status, on, a faithful on. minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Discipleship is taking a stronger donkey and tying it to a younger colt. And that younger colt will become just as strong as they pull the same weight and they learn together. Amen. This is the elevation that we become brothers, level, even plain disciples. Who's got Colossians 4, 17? Yeah, just a few verses. Oh, come on. 
Archippus has received something extraordinary in the Lord. And he's being reminded that what he started needs to bear fruit. Fruit that is totally complete. That he doesn't leave the task unfinished. This is so much like reminding a son like Solomon. Hey, you've been given a lot. You've been given a great deal. But you're going to have to finish what you start. You're going to have to complete the work project so that we might have the fruit that God has called us to. Now, we're going to move on to some other topics, but there's something that we want to finish with on this topic. Before I do it, I want to ask you if you completed the work you started. Or do you have half-read books all over your house? Do you have building projects that are uncompleted all around you? And you've been promising for a year that you'd get around to changing somebody's flat tire, but it's still got a slow leak. Part of discipleship is finishing what you start. Can you say that takes some time? Yeah. yeah. But then the question becomes, how much time? What's, what's biblical? Well, who wants to read? I'll read for you. I, look, how can I turn that down? That man has a glorious beard. Paul, read Leviticus 19, 23 through 25. And let's look at a biblical pattern that can be demonstrated even from a fruit tree. Not a fruit cake, a fruit tree. <laughs> Leviticus 19.25 oh, 19.23 through 25 23 through 25 When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree regard its fruit as forbidden for three years you are to consider it forbidden it must not be eaten in the fourth year all its fruit will be holy an offering of praise to the Lord but in the fifth year you may eat its fruit. In this way, your harvest will be increased. I am the Lord your God. Look, God knows how to take care of the creation. And essentially, he's saying, three years in your planning, don't, don't do anything. Just learn. Just soak up the sun. Get some rain on you. Get some roots in the soil. In the fourth year, you might have something to offer. And in the fifth year, man, you'll be good to go. What if that was a pattern for discipleship? So, Pastor, I've been here 15 years. Yeah, but you ain't completed anything you started. <laughs> See, you got to finish. You got to finish for three years in a row. You got to finish so that in the fourth year, you're starting to bear something that can be called faithfulness. Look, Solomon was given all the materials that he could want, he was given the plans for the construction. You're given all the materials you could want. You're being given divine plans all of the time. The only thing that's missing in most Christians' life are four years of actual discipleship development. All aimed at being able to finish what you start. You're not done when you finish getting discipled. You've proven that you will finish what you start so that God can give you a building project And if he comes back 120 years later, you haven't given up on it. Because the salvation of the human race might depend on it. Discipleship develops the character to not quit until you get Christ. That's missing everywhere, which is why ministries are failing everywhere. Brother Linton, I believe we're back to you in verse 3. The foundation Solomon laid for the building of the temple of God... 60 cubits long and 20 cubits wide, using the cubit of the old standard. The portico at the front of the temple was 20 cubits long across the width of the building 
and 20 cubits high. Yeah. Man, what standard did they use? Oh, 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 I'm talking about that OG. There is a new standard that is more appealing. Everybody wants something new. They want to run to the new standard. When they hear of the new standard, they hear that it's easier. It's, it's better to build by. It's more efficient. It's quicker. But it's nothing like the old standard, isn't it? Nothing like the old breed. I want to hand out a few passages on this topic. Who wants to read? Gabe Southey. You're going to get Jeremiah 6. 16. Now, Southern, you're way in the back, so when you get it, stand up and read for it. Oh, yeah, like a man who's about to get married. Oh. Yeah. Nick Rosales, you're going to get Mark 7, verse 8. Rob, you get Luke 5, 39. Hit Jeremiah when you've got it. Jeremiah 6, 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the angel. Man, ask for the ancient paths. Ask, ask for the old standard. Ask for the ancient paths. Now Israel was not willing to walk in it because they were looking for a new way to do what God said. But let this not be true of us. There is an original design. The temple was built according to it, and you must build according to it as well. Who's got Mark 7, verse 8? Mark 7, verse 8. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Come on now. Listen, this is the cry of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. That we want to live by the word of God and the power of the Spirit, not just the traditions of men. Amen. Yet many of the people who profess this as a part of their doctrine are so bound by rigid traditions that they're incapable of feeling the move of the Spirit. Yeah. The saints. There is a right place for tradition that is derived from the word and the Spirit, not superimposed upon it. It's how you learn how to walk in things appropriately. But much more pertinently tonight, what I want to emphasize is the areas that we've placed cultural traditions, personal traditions, traditions that are based upon how you've always related to this family, how you've always related to this friend, or this other social circle that says that they're believers. See, those things, those things will cut you off from the very standard that is the old standard. They'll actually eat away at your bones and your faith till you have nothing left. But somebody say, no, not us tonight. No, not us. Hey, who's got Luke 5? Luke 5, 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, like the new. For he says, the old is better. Oh, I remember growing up in Christianity and hearing a song that say, it's so fine, it's so fine, God's new wine. You know, I don't think so. I personally like the kind that's been fermenting a little while. The kind that has proven faithful. It's had some... Active ingredients that changed its constitution. Once you get an intoxicating sip of spiritual truth that was true in Abraham's day, true in David's day, true in Jesus' day, and true in your day, man, you will learn to feel the moving of the Spirit with things. I'm actually pretty wary of things people call new wine. You'll never want to deviate from the divine plan once you see how rooted it is in history. God did not break up the history into seven dispensations because he couldn't think ahead. He's had a singular plan from the beginning of creation until now, and the temple helps to reveal it. 
which I think takes us to verse 4, Mr. Linton. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. He paneled the main hall with pine and covered it with fine gold and decorated it with palm trees and chain and diamonds. He adorned the temple with precious stones, and the gold he used was gold of pyrobiene. He overlaid the ceiling beams, door frames, walls, and doors of the temple with gold, and he carved the cherubim of the walls. Now what you're starting to see is you're starting to see a contrast. You remember all the weeks that we went through the tabernacle? Yes. What was on the inside of the tabernacle? Cherubim. Cherubim. What was it covered with? No. It was covered with skins. It was covered possibly with dachshund skins. Oh, I can tell you all about that. The glories of Google Translate. What we're seeing here is something that is being transformed. You are seeing what used to be a focal point covered in skins. Now everything is being overlaid with gold. In fact, Exodus 25 through Exodus 40 outlined that dwelling, and it's designed by God. That was designed by God himself. Nothing designed by God ever needs to change or never needs to be dealt away with. It doesn't need to be discarded. It was God's design revealed from heaven. This was pure pattern revelation. It will progress, though. Revelation always progresses, but the old is never disregarded. The point of verses 4 through 7 is that what was dyed skins of animals has now been transformed. Everybody say transformed. Transformed. Into something more visibly glorious. It was overlaid with fine gold. You know, that reminds me of a passage, Judah. I think that's 1 Corinthians 15, ah. verse 46 through 49. You know, I think I'll read it. That's good. Verse 46. The spiritual does not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so were those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Saints, the tent of Moses had to come first. It's intended to lead us in the right direction. It is imagery. It is a pattern that is straight out of the heavens. It was a divine design. And yet, the temple that Solomon is about to build is clearly intended to communicate an increased, a progressive message about our bodies and what we are destined to become. That we are not going to stay in animal skins. We're not going to stay in blood and flesh, but we're heading to something that is Permanent. Now, when you hear that, don't think Moses' tabernacle was discarded any more than this earth is going to be discarded or your body is going to be discarded. The whole point was that it becomes more glorious, not that it's discarded. The heavens would have had to change for that because that's where Moses saw it. Look, saints, this evening we don't have time to go into every single item and its hermeneutical usage throughout the word. But I do want to suggest to you that palm trees, that precious stones, that cherubim are intended to communicate a certain kind of message about the age to come. If you have eyes to see and are willing to spend a little bit of time with a concordance, you might even see that it's speaking about the nature of the body to come. Uh, Hey, Linton, you got verse 8? He built the most holy place. Its length corresponded to the width of the temple, 20 cubits long 
and 20 cubits wide. He overlaid the inside with 600 talents of fine gold. Mm. Wow. Look, we got a slide for you. Brought it all the way back from an archaeological dig. Perfect. (laughs) This is a picture of a couple cherubim. It's an artist's rendition of what it looked like inside of Solomon's temple in the Holy of Holies. Mm. I don't know how important any of that is. Somebody had the nerve to copyright it in 2002. And I think that's kind of audacious since God revealed it from heaven in 1600 B.C. (laughs) But the point here is that that it is 20 cubits high, a cubit being somewhere between 16 inches and 21 inches, but for argument's sake, 18 inches, and 20 cubits wide. Now, that's interesting because that's much larger than the tabernacle was. The tabernacles was 10 by 10, but we'll get into that more. I want you to start to catch something with what you're hearing. The tabernacle design never goes away. What happens in the temple is it is the original design expanded extraordinarily. In fact, it doubled in size. It keeps getting better, but it didn't go away. The plan never changes, but it does grow in scope throughout the Bible. Every once in a while, you find a mysterious truth like the plan didn't change for Jews, but it grew to include Gentiles. Oh, come on, man. Brother Linton, help us. The gold nails weigh 50 shekels. Oh, nailed it. Man, everything's getting better. Even the fasteners in the temple were comprised of gold. Wow. Hey, what does gold represent? Divinity. divinity. Even the things that held the temple together represented divinity. I want to hand out a few passages. Who wants to read? Rob, you get Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. Uh, what's your name over there? Which one? Tisdale. <laughs> Big beard. Isaiah 22, 20 through 24. And, Ibrahim, you're going to get Ecclesiastes 12, 11. Oh, Eben, get it. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Wait, impress impress them on your children, you're saying? No. Like, not by osmosis, hope that they gather these commands just by being around them? Well, I took them to Sunday school. (laughs) You actually have to drive those things deep inside? Yeah. Keep reading. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So who's so bold to think of themselves as the temple of God? Yes. yes. You should. You should. Yeah. Ask yourself what holds you together. Mm. What do you build with? The divine word of God is what builds us into a dwelling. The commands that builds our children into a dwelling. It is what makes our homes a dwelling for God by His Spirit. If you're held up by anything else, you'll fall apart completely. But it is the commands of God being driven into you and to your children, which forms you together to be the temple. Who's got Isaiah 22? Before we read it, what Justin said earlier is good enough to revisit for a minute. For your children... To receive the divinity that God's called them to. It must be impressed. For you to receive the divinity that Christ is calling you to. 
it must be impressed. There is no such thing as osmosis in the kingdom. You must take hold of what God has provided. It must be driven in, in fact. Yeah. Hey, who has Isaiah 22? Hey, how do you impress nails? You hit them with a hammer? With Whoa. a tool, baby. First Timothy 3 <laughs> lays this type out for what it is to be a minister in the house of God. It has to have gold-fastened nails that put your family together. It has to be really clearly seen. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, he starts with you, he moves to your children, and he ends up talking about what has to be nailed to the front door of your house. See, this is what makes ministry. Not one's ability to speak, and certainly not their ability to make a YouTube video. Amen. Who had Isaiah 22? Clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. All right, pause for just a minute, Tisdale. Listen, hey, this is a description about how authority is being placed on a man. Was it because he got recently converted? No. Nope. Was it because he had been around for 15 years but never completed anything? No. Nope. Okay, just checking. Keep going. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key Oh, come on now. Uh I will drive him. Saints, if you want to accomplish something for God, it's going to take a pressing. It's going to take a driving. It's going to take a hammer-like force for you to be immovable. Do you want to be immovable? Yes. Yes. All right, then let's stop looking for the gentlest correction that can come to us on the planet. Let's start looking for God to drive in the kind of convictions we need to stand. To stand with the faith that our pastors were preaching about yesterday. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Gold nails. Finish your passage, brother. Come on, man. He is a son in a house like Timothy because of a way of life that can be depended upon, that everything can hang on. Saints, you want things placed on your shoulder from the King of Kings? You want to be responsible for people? Listen, if that's your desire, you're going to have to be ready to have that weight hang upon you. I want you to notice, though, that these divine nails, that these words of God that are being built up into a house inside of a man, that place him in a seat of honor, it allows things to overflow into lesser vessels. Yeah. Saints, for us to actually be able to benefit other people, we first have to be pressed, driven, and be able to handle God's weight upon our shoulders. Then what you will pour into the lesser vessels, your children and those that are coming up around you, will be divinity. Saints, you're going to pour something into them one way or another. That's the truth tonight. But we're going to stick with the divinity part. Hey, who's got Ecclesiastes 12? I got it. The words of the wise are like ropes, the collected sayings, like curling and flooded nails, given by one shepherd. Woo! You need to master the teachings of your shepherds. Amen. Because they received it from the one true shepherd. That is how you learn how to build a temple. Solomon spent four years, even though he was well-equipped, even though he had plans delivered by God, because a lot was at stake. 
Well, good thing for you, the only thing at stake is the salvation of the world. Look, as a reminder, a point of interest, in the last few weeks, these brothers talked to you about two treasuries in the temple. One that came from offerings and the other that came from glorious uh, conquest of faith, bold, daring leaps of faith. Every time they went to war with a foreign nation, they brought back tribute and they filled the treasuries of God. I'd like you to think about that as every serious revelation that you've ever heard from your pastors. It was developed in warfare and you get it for free. <laughs> Come on, man. Let's pick up in verse 10. Y'all want to hear about the temple? Yes. In the most holy place, he made a pair of sculptured cherubim and overlaid them with gold. The total wingspan of the cherubim was 20 cubits. One wing of the first cherubim was five cubits long and touched the temple wall while its other wing, also five cubits long, touched the wing of the other cherub. Similarly, one wing of the second cherub was five cubits long and touched the other temple wall, and its other wing, also five cubits long, touched the wing of the first cherub. The wings of these cherubs extended 20 cubits. They stood on their feet, facing the main hall. All right, so we're getting into more dimensions, and this is going to be important because of what we get into in a little while later. We've got a slide showing you on a picture what we just read. Here we have the two cherubim and their wings are side by side, stretched out. One is touching one side of the temple, holy of holies. The other one's touching the other cherubim. You have five cubits per wing. Four wings equals the total length of 20 cubits. We have 20 cubits in width and 20 cubits high. This design has not changed at all. In fact, you could see the arc underneath it, which had virtually the same thing. Two cherubim that were touching their wings together. This design has not changed at all. It has been expanded extraordinarily. It has doubled. Solomon's temple <laughs> takes what Moses put into effect and it expands it and brings greater glory to it. Come on. Now, let's talk about the meaning of winged cherubim. Yeah. We've been getting into this a little bit lately, but we want to refresh you on what winged cherubim represent. We have another slide. God is presented in the Tanakh many, many times as the one who is enthroned between the cherubim. In 1 Samuel 4.4, he is presented who is enthroned between the cherubim. 2 Samuel 6.2-3, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. The ark of the covenant, the two cherubim touching each other, forms like a seat, a throne that God is there enthroned upon. In 1 Kings 19, 15 through 16, the God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. This is painting this as his rulership, his seat of authority on the planet. 1 Chronicles 13, 6, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by my name. Talk about focal points. That ark itself was a focal point because it was where God was enthroned between the cherubim. Yahweh is enthroned between the cherubim. There has always been a visible representation of this in the tabernacle by way of the ark. We want to show you a blown up picture of that ark. Yeah. So we had the opportunity to review what Justin had taught you guys already about cherubim. Yeah. You remember that they were guardians? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I heard Pastor Matt preaching the other day and he was talking about a couple different types of guardians. 
Some that were a little three-pound Jack Russell. Others that were a bit intimidating. Do you remember that? Yeah. Were cherubim guardians that were to be messed with? No. no. Are they the uh, guys in Britain with the funny hats and the red coats that everybody gets a photo of while they're messing with them? Make way for the queen. No. These guys represent guardians of the most precious things on the earth. So not only are these guys guardians, but they're an indicator when something is extraordinarily important to the Lord. This is a rendering, if you will, of what an artist believes the ark looks like. It's kind of close. It gave us something to work with. What you're looking at here forms a kind of footstool. It gives us an idea of God's focal point on the earth. We know he's everywhere. We know he's in the heavens. But there is something right here that he's being manifest in. Would you like to read some scriptures with us? Yes. Yes. Nick Eregina, if you would get 1 Chronicles 28, 2 through 3. Then um, Chris Riazora, Isaiah 66, verse 1. We'll read those and then we'll talk about the cherubim and the ark a little bit more. Amen. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 2. King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord. For the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. Clearly in this passage, the ark is called the footstool, and God is enthroned between it. The imagery from the biblical narrative is that God who dwells in the heavens rests his feet on the ark inside of the temple. So he had a throne in the heavens, and he had a footstool on the earth. Does that make sense? Well, let's hear it again in Isaiah 66, and we can do it many times, but I don't want to. Now, now this gets, oh, go ahead, brother. You got it. <laughs> now this gets kind of cool because we know that was on the what was on the earth is a pattern of what is in the heavens. Yeah. So if God is enthroned between the cherubim on the earth, but that is only His footstool and His throne is in the heavens, what is He enthroned between in the heavens? Cherubim. The cherubim. cherubim. Now this is where it gets neat. Now we want to put up a slide. Oh, come on. You oh, see? Come on. Look at this. When the ark is placed into the temple, you have the footstool underneath larger cherubim. Now in the temple, there is more than one throne. The heavenly one is pictured with the earthly footstool under it in a singular place. Are you seeing that? You have what was called where he's enthroned, but it's really just a footstool. And then you have the heavenly enthroned God, the cherubim, over the ark, which is his footstool. If you think of the tabernacle of Moses, in it was an ark, and God was enthroned above it, but it was just his feet that were touching it. Now the room has grown, the picture has grown, the revelation has grown, and God's throne and his footstool are in the same room. Come on. Wow, where have we ever seen anything? It's almost like John the Revelator understood this. Revelation 21, 2 through 5. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. 
and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. When we talk about everything new, he didn't disregard anything. He didn't throw it away and start again. What he did was make it new. The picture keeps getting bigger and bigger and including more of what God is. This picture is a little bit like heaven and earth are starting to kiss. We're getting a bigger picture of everything. Solomon's temple as a focal point represents the goal and the plan, the teleos of God, the culmination of the ages. He wants to dwell with men and his feet touch the earth first, but now we have the whole throne room on the earth. In other words, he's becoming all and in all. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 14. He made the curtain of blue, purple, and crimson yarn and fine linen with cherubim worked into it. Yeah, the cherubim worked into it, man. That's it's almost like we're building a continual picture that's repeating. What did we say the cherubim were earlier? Guardians. That should call to mind something. We want to put a couple slides on the screen for you. I want to draw to mind something that is being foreshadowed here. This is Genesis 3, 24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming or flashing sword back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Since he placed the cherubim there. The cherubim was there to guard along with a weapon on the curtain between everything else in God's throne room. Cherubim are pictured almost as if the very source of life is on the other side of it. There are guardians that are interweaved. And I can tell you, they're not just embroidery. When God puts a shadow on the earth, a representation on the earth, there's always something in the heavens that it represents. When I roll to the next slide. When you see this, the word he placed is shikan. It means to settle down in, to dwell, to abide, to inhabit, to be intertwined with. It's different than other words in Hebrew like yasab, which simply mean live. God didn't just set man on the east side of the garden and put a cherub between them. He's, he is dwelling and intertwined with the east side of the garden where they have been put out of. Now, when you think about that, that gets very interesting because of our next slide. Genesis 3.24, to guard. We think of guarding as keeping somebody out. But this means to keep watch over, to preserve, to be careful with, to watch carefully over. The word suggests the idea of protecting, preserving, or saving. In other words, when God put man out of the garden and you picture in Sunday school an angel with a sword stabbing anybody who comes close, that's the wrong idea. It's more like he puts man out on the east side and he puts a a guardian cherub there to guard the way back in. To show mankind that it was being preserved. In fact, we have a translation for you that is uh, kind of like, I don't know, an expanded version. On the left is the NIV. We would say, though, that what's on the right is likely what's being conveyed. After he drove the man out, he, meaning God... 
dwelt on the east side of the Garden of Eden in his cherubim throne to guard, preserve, watch, or keep carefully the way to the tree of life. One is a picture of an angry God that's trying to get rid of you, and the other is the picture of the good father sitting on the porch waiting for your return, guarding to make sure that you can come back. With that said, a guard can be a really good or a bad thing depending upon your relationship to that guard. Now, if you're looking for nefarious purposes... You're looking to do something that is deceitful, perhaps even work against mankind even further. Maybe a guard is a really bad thing to you. But when the guard works for your father and he's protecting something that is going to belong to you, is a part of your inheritance. Man, that guard's not a bad guy. He's a saving grace. So when we think of these cherubim, they're guarding and protecting so that you can return. But let's be honest. You can't. The way has to be made open for you. What was meant to guard and protect was righteous, holy, and good, just like the law. But it also stood as a barrier because you could not cross it being unrighteous. So something had to happen. Check out Mark 15, verse 38 through 39. Did we hand that out? No? I'll read it. Mark 15, verse 38 says... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who was a guardian, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Look, the obstacle was removed from top down, not from the bottom up. So when we're seeing the throne of God, when we're seeing the footstool of God, God descending down feet first, and then the top of him comes to dwell where he belongs. It is foreshadowing the curtain that would separate us from the holy place, being torn from the top down with his entrance into the world. It didn't tear from the bottom up. No amount of effort on earth, nothing done by regular human beings would ever achieve it. But heaven would descend down and make a way for the heavens to dwell on the earth. Hey, let's pick up in verse 15. In the front of the temple, he made two pillars, which together were 35 cubits long, each with a capital on top measuring five cubits. He made interwoven chains and put them on the top of the pillars. He also made a hundred pomegranates and attached them to the chains. He erected the pillars in front of the temple, one, one to the south, one to the north. The one to the south he named Jacob. The one to the north, Boaz. Mm. Oh, come on now. we got to take a look at the name. Some of you may have read it in a footnote. Jacob, he establishes. It's inferred that it's God who's doing the establishing. And Boaz. Did you say (laughs) Boaz? Yes. Rough equivalent. Slight translation issue between Serbian and Hebrew. Mighty in strength. He establishes not just in strength, but in a great kind of strength. That connotation is carried with this name and with this word. Now listen, these two pillars don't support anything. We're not talking about a header and a footer. These pillars are put here to speak a message. I promise. God is great at interior decorating his house, but he doesn't put things there for no reason like your wife's pillows. They do serve a purpose. They have a function. It's true. 
I just got rid of some fussy ones in our trailer that my wife has for no reason. I saw those. It's so true that in most renditions of Solomon's temple, they can't help but extend some kind of roof out over these. The Bible never describes that. They were there standing alone as two witnesses on their own speaking one message about God. To start with, Yachin is a priest. First Chronicles 24 says that. Boaz is of the line of Judah. That's the kingly tribe. So when you start to think through this, not only do we have something that is established by God and something that is strong, but there's two lone pillars that somehow or another are a priest, king, and redeemer between the two of them. Come on now. That in itself is beautiful, but would you like to hear better? Yeah. I'm so glad, Miranda, that you wanted to hear better. Read Psalm 62, verse 11 through 12. Look, if you only knew one thing heard, and you were only going to say two things about it, it would be that God is strength and God has established a loving covenant on the earth. The resounding message of these two pillars is God is strong and He has established loving faithfulness on the earth. As we move to chapter 4, Ezra in a single chapter has managed to connect themes that range from Abraham to Boaz to David to Solomon. You might say that he talked about Abraham's revelation, that it was preserved by Boaz, that it was fought for by David, and it's about to be achieved in Solomon. It's that old standard that just keeps getting clearer and clearer and clearer. Hey, what's chapter 4 and verse 1? He made a bronze altar, 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide and 10 cubits high. All right, so if you remembered earlier, the width of the temple complex, the width of the temple is 20 cubits. How long is the bronze altar? 20. And how wide is the bronze altar? 20. 20. So this bronze altar is the exact same width of the entire temple. You know what that means? Whenever you're entering the temple, you can't get around the bronze altar. It's the entire Come on now! In fact, it's the first thing that you see. You can't see past it until you cross it. It's the full width of the temple. Hey, that reminds me of Hebrews 12, verse 14. It says, make every effort. Say every effort. Every Every effort. effort. To live in peace with all men and to be holy. Yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor like it. Be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You'll never get past that altar. If you want to get into the presence of God, it is required that you get to the altar. Why do we pray through the tabernacle of Moses? Because it's God's design. Why do we study the temple of Solomon? Because it's God's design only just a little bit larger and clearer and easier to see. It's been pinched zoomed for you. If you want to get close to the Lord, you got to go through the brazen altar. You literally will never see the Lord 
never get to his throne, never be in his presence without going to the brazen altar. So men who repent the best see the Lord the best. Men who repent the most see the Lord the most. We ought to value repentance instead of hide from it. What's verse 2, Linton? He made the sea of cast metal, circular in shape, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim, and 5 cubits high. He took a line of 30 cubits to measure around it. Below the rim, figures of bulls encircled it, 10 to a cubit. The bulls were cast in two rows in one piece with the sea. All right, all right. I know all of you heard those two verses, and you immediately thought to yourself, there's a problem here. No? Nobody in the room thought there's a problem what, here? We don't have any nerdy engineers in here. No? Uh, Carlos is out of town. What happened? So listen, there is a perceived math problem here. And we want to walk you through it and give a few proposed solutions. Because Rob, Rob claimed the nerd title. He said it's a circle. It's a circle problem. Okay, so somebody is aware of it. <laughs> For those of you that didn't catch it, it's a relationship between the diameter to the circumference. The stated diameter is 10 cubits. The circumference mathematically derived by multiplying the diameter 10 times would be pi, 3.14. The Bible states that the circumference is 30 cubits, not 31.4 cubits. You with me so far? No, slow down for them. Break it down. The diameter is 10 cubits, you should be able to multiply it times pi, 3.14, and come up with a circumference, 31.4. But the Bible says the diameter is 10 and the circumference is 30. This, as sad as that sounds, has become a problem for some people because they are that hung up on stupidness. They think they're that smart. But there's a few solutions. All right, so solution number one is that we are simply looking at a measurement that is either from the inside or the outside. Listen, this is not a material that has nothing between it. It might be half an inch thick. It might be an inch thick. It's got to hold a lot of water and be around for a long time. When Solomon and his workers built something, it wasn't intended to be there for the weekend. It could be something as simple as which side we are measuring from. In addition to that, if you really wanted to look into it, in the Masoretic text itself, there are brackets placed around some of the numbers. When we're looking at an ancient Hebrew language, we didn't originally have vowel points. We didn't originally have decimal points. But there are markers in the Masoretic text that clarify this if you go with that reading. And it works out almost four or five decibels down to be exactly five. 3.1416 in the Masoretic text. Listen, the things that people make issues about are never founded upon reality. You know that. Listen, we want to show you and take this as an opportunity, though, at how precise the Bible actually is. Because its author doesn't make mistakes. It was written by men, but a holy God that designed the cosmos. I assure you, he can get his measurements right. Do you want to hear the architect of the cosmos doing math? Yes. All right. I Remember, you asked for this. Let's give it that slide. 
There's two key verses in the Bible that in a single verse speak about the creation. Many of the constants in the creation are now thought to not be so constant. I was taught that the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second and that it never changed. Five years ago, they conclusively proved that it's slowing down. But there are some constants that never change in the creation. The relationship of the diameter of a circle to the circumference of a circle will never change. Would you be surprised to find out that in the first verse in the Bible, which is about the creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you take the number of those letters times the product of those letters, since each word has a numerical value, and the number of words times the product of the words, which I know you're all wanting to do, Shockingly, it comes out to 3.146 times 10 to the 17th power. Tell me that God doesn't know how to make a circle. He made the earth. Now, who figured this out? One of those math geeks that had a problem in the first place with the hand breath issue on the, uh, on the basin. I want to show you another one. Do any of you guys in engineering know what log E is? This is the most basic algorithm and the very first one that was ever found. It's the basis for all algorithms. And if you're an electrician, you have to know it. If you're a computer scientist, you have to know it. It's the basis for everything. There is one more verse in the Bible that in a single verse talks about the creation of the world. That verse is John 1.1. 1, 1. It is written in the only other language in the world where every letter has a numerical value. I mean, Rome had a language, Latin, and some of the letters have numerical values. A V is five. You, you know how this works. Of course, Rome's alphabet, it doesn't have all of the letters with numbers. And when you add up the total value of the Roman alphabet, <laughs> it's 666. But that's another message. <laughs> taking John 1 1 and taking the number of letters multiplied by the products of the letters and then dividing it by the number of words times the product of the words, you get log E. Tell me that God is not a mathematician. Yeah. That's 2.7183 times 10 to the 65th power. Wow. And these are written into ancient text. So we don't spend a great deal of time arguing with people about whether or not God can make a circle. We assume there's a problem in their understanding, not a problem in God's arithmetic. Why don't we pick up in verse 4? The sea stood on 12 bulls, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. That's a lot of bull. <laughs> the sea rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were toward the center. It was a hand in thickness, and its rim was like the rim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It held 3,000 baths. Because <laughs> yeah, at 3,001, you had to change the water. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Then made 10 basins for washing and placed five on the south side and five on the north. In them, the things to be used for the burnt offerings were rinsed, but the sea was to be used by the priests for washing. Okay, so in the tabernacle, you have how many wash basins? One! One! 
That one wash basin was used by the priests and the people. Everybody washed there. This, the temple presents Solomon building ten basins for the people, five on the north, five on the south, and then there was a sea for the priests. Look, the original design you're seeing is expanded in every way. Not just is there one wash basin for the people and the priests and for the whole nation of Israel to take part in. There now is ten basins for the people, and there's a whole sea for the priests. That was to invite not just the nation of Israel, but the entire world to come wash in the word of God as they saw the nation of Israel doing that. Do you remember that the design never changes, but it does expand? That God never replaces a... We need to compare these two buildings now. Is that okay? All right. Now... I'm a simpleton, so being able to see it makes a big difference for me. Amen. Can I get an amen from anybody? Amen. Amen. This is the tabernacle complex. So we have our gates of praise that we're familiar with. We have a bronze altar, bronze labor. The table of showbread is on one side. The seven-branch lampstand is on the other side, and there's one of each. Then we get to an altar of incense. Some debate about where it is on which side of the curtain, but we're going to deal with that on another night. Oh, there's no debate. The altar of incense cannot be inside of the Holy of Holies or you couldn't attend to it three times a day. It is associated with the Holy of Holies, but it is where it's placed on that diagram or I wouldn't have put it on the screen. Oh, Amen. It has to do with the fact that incense rises from it and smoke doesn't stay static, it's spreading and it's supposed to be breathed in by the Lord. It's expected yes. that he understands that he can, of course he can. Holy of Holies on the far end of it. Where you, we had our ark with two cherubim on it. Consider that picture in your mind. We have a linear progression that goes straight from the gate all the way across. It's actually fairly simple. It's not that hard to remember or pray through. Next slide. Oh! Oh! Do you see a few more colors and things on the screen? We have our gates of praise that are expanded. We even have steps because we're coming up to a permanent building, not a tent that is on a desert floor. As you move in, we just described the brazen altar, and it is the same width as the actual complex itself, ensuring that there is no way for you to come anywhere near him without first going through repentance. Man, that is a good word. I wish we did that with the pastors occasionally. Off to the side. This is not directly behind the brazen altar. It's almost parallel with it. Our arrangement is slightly different here, and it's much larger yet again. We have labors and basins that are off to the side that are the other ten that we heard about, five on each side that are for washing. You see how expanded this is compared to what you just saw? As you enter, we have our pillars, Jacqueline and Moses, on our right and left, or actually in this case north and south, because it's oriented like a compass. As you walk past, established in strength, you see how many menorahs there are? You see how many tables of showbread there are? Whether you look to the right or the left, it is covered in his word and in his spirit. As you're approaching the altar of incense, you're literally surrounded by burning menorahs and the bread of his presence. Can you say that's expanded a little bit? So what we have when you're looking at this is all of the same elements, but more of them. The idea is that you don't simply go from one station to the next station, but you're being encompassed about by that station everywhere. 
That is supposed to speak to you something. Solomon's temple is the original design, but it's expanded to be all-encompassing. Can we give you a couple scriptures to give you a hint what we're starting to, to point towards? Yes. I'm so glad. David Hall, read Habakkuk 2.14. You can thank me later for having to find that. Nolan, 1 Corinthians 13.12. While they're turning to those, go back to that slide for just a second. It's not just that there's ten tables of the bread of his presence and ten menorahs. When you get into the Holy of Holies... You have more than one set of cherubim. It's a little bit like Moses' tabernacle is a glimpse, but Solomon's tabernacle is the expanded reality. I should rather say Solomon's temple. Or maybe not. You'll have to see. What's Habakkuk 2.14? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wow! There is a day coming where everywhere you look, you'll see the glory of the Lord. If you're at Moses' tabernacle, you do see the glory of the Lord. But at Solomon's, you see an awful lot more of it. What's 1 Corinthians 13, 12? Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Listen, we are growing in our revelation, but God's nature has never changed. We're growing in our understanding of the design, but the design hasn't changed. It just keeps getting bigger. It may even encompass the entire earth at some point. Why don't we pick up in verse 7? He made ten gold lampstands according to the specifications for them and placed them in the temple. Five on the south side and five on the north side. So instead of having one menorah, we have ten golden lampstands. Does anybody remember how many burning lamps were on each lampstand? Seven. So what's ten times seven? Seventy. Ten times seven is seventy. This is representing, in Genesis 10, the seventy nations from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis 10, verse 2 through 5, we have 14 nations from Japheth. In 6 through 20, 30 nations from Ham. 21 through 32... 26 nations from Shem, a total of 70. In Solomon's temple, everything is expanding. It is representing the nation of Israel and burning the presence of God, burning and burning, and the Spirit of God burning for the nations of the world. Let's look at the next slide. This is just a representation of the number 70 in the Tanakh. You see in Genesis 10, the sons of Noah. The Beneha Elohim in Genesis 11 that went and disturbed the entire world. Genesis 46, there were 70 of those family went into Egypt, so on and so forth. 70 is a huge number in the Bible representing the, all the nations of God. Let's pick up in verse 8 and we're going to see this continue. He made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north. He also made a hundred sprinkling bowls. Listen, we want to continue to paint a picture, but suffice it to say, we're describing something that at one point in time, it was there. It could be found, but God has intentionally expanded it so that we might experience, taste, and be a part of all that he is. Let's put this slide back on the screen for just a moment. When we're speaking about these tables, when we're speaking about sprinkling bowls, 
it kind of begins to encompass you. Like once you're in his presence, there's almost nowhere that you can turn that doesn't have the fullness of who he is. It's a picture of what we are heading towards, what we have a glimpse of now, what we are longing for. I want to read to you out of Isaiah 30, and I want you to think about what God is bringing upon the earth and the temple represents for his sons and his daughters in this house. Isaiah 30, and I'm reading from 19 to 21. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. Does that draw to mind what we read out of Revelation earlier? How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Saints, the temple is a picture of God's overall plan and how his word and spirit encompass you everywhere that you look and they're speaking to you, leading you to his presence, to his holy place, where heaven and earth have met, where there is a singular throne that everything has been made right and there is no more tears. Come on. Saints, there's a message for us in that. As we taste of it now, we are laboring towards a time when we're no longer looking at glimpses. The reality has come to earth. And now, His Word and His Spirit are leading us to the full reality. Look, we, uh, we've been teaching one hour and 32 minutes. And some of y'all got some sleepy eyes. <laughs> We have not begun to get to the best part, and we've covered some really good things. Um, I suggest you rouse yourself, because you're not going to be able to buy what we're about to give you for free. And you don't want to treat it like it costs nothing. These revelations, they have come from warfare. And they have stood the test of time, and before this evening is over... You will understand the dwelling of God in a way that none of you do now, and I can absolutely assure you that. Do you want to learn? Yes! Let's pick up in verse 9. He made the courtyard of the priest, and the large court, and the doors for the court, and overlaid the doors with bronze. He He placed the seat on the south side at the southeast corner. He also made the pots and shovels and sprinkling bowls. So Haram finished the work he had undertaken for King Solomon in the temple of God. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two sets of network decorating the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the 400 pomegranates for the two sets of network, two rows of pomegranates for each network, decorating the bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the stands with their bases, the sea and the 12 bulls under it. Look, I, I want to stop there and just make a note for you. That whole wash basin that we were discussing with the problem of the diameter times pi, it had 12 bulls, one for each tribe of Israel, three to the east, three to the west, three to the north, three to the south, just like the tribal encampment. That's because Israel is for the washing and the redemption of the priesthood. You might say the firstborn nation. But salvation was supposed to emanate from Israel and go out to all of the world. That's why the... They're outward facing. The the writer Ezra even lets you know that they're hind parts, if you're a Don Potter fan, were touching each other. They were back to back facing the corners of the world, 
ready to wash the world of impurity. That's a part of the temple of God. Let's pick up in verse 16. The pots, shovels, meat forks, and all related articles. All the objects that Aram Abi made for King Solomon for the temple of the Lord were polished were of polished bronze. Now look, bronze is a notable metal for one reason. It could pass through fire. What happens to gold whenever it passes through fire? It melts very easily. But bronze can pass through the fire and it will not melt. Man, that's 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 14. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Look, this man, Haram Abi, he was a Gentile. And he could only build according to the old standard. That was the only way he could build. He couldn't go off and find a new standard made of wood, hay, and straw to go build with. He had to build with the old standard. And that old standard is the only thing that can pass through fire. That old way of life that is being handed down to you is the only thing that can pass through fire. Every other thing that's new that doesn't relate to the old will be burned up. It all must pass through the fire or it is not of God. Everything that you build with has to pass through the fire. That is why it's so difficult and so hard to build because everything that you build with has to pass through fire. It has to pass through fire. Otherwise, it will not last. Who's got verses 17 through 19? Oh, that's Linton again. The king had been casting clay molds in the plain of the Jordan between Succoth and Zeratim. <laughs> All yeah. these things that Solomon made amounted to so much that the weight of the bronze was not determined. Solomon also made all the furnishings that were in God's temple, the golden altar, the, the tables on which the bread of the prisoners, which was the bread of the prisoners. So saints, I want to call to mind some things that we've covered on Monday nights and on other nights. Remember David slayed one giant? <laughs> But his men killed the rest? And it was attributed to him? Listen, in this age, we fight battles that are attributed to the Lord. In the age to come, we will build things that are a reflection of his kingdom that will be attributed to him. Solomon's men did the work. I assure you, Solomon was not out there working on bronze and brass. (laughs) But it was attributed to him because he was their king. And he had their wholehearted devotion. Your labor now will be attributed to the king of kings, and he will delight in it. Brother Linton, finish out the chapter for us. The lampstands of pure gold with their lamps to burn in front of the inner sanctuary as it has prescribed. The gold floor work and lamps and tongs, they were solid gold. The pure gold wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and censers, and the gold doors of the temple, the inner doors of the most holy place, and the doors of the main hall. Now that we've laid out all of the furniture, now that we have got some understanding of the relationship, yeah. are y'all ready for the best? Yeah. 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 What's, what's five in the Bible? Great grace. Oh, man, we are about to get some enlightenment here. Hallelujah. Lift up your hands. Hallelujah. Lord, open Hallelujah. my eyes. Help me understand the good things we're about to see in your law. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Okay, I'm going to hand out a couple scriptures and you're going to hold on to them while we go through this. So Brandon, take Matthew 13, 52. Andrew Hayes, take Proverbs 25, 2. And Mr. Linton, 
You start reading chapter 5 and get us down past verse 1. When all the work Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and all the furniture, and he placed them in the treasuries of God's temple. While you're contemplating that, let's read Matthew 13, 52. He said to them, Therefore every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven See, you got to have that old standard. It has to be revealed to you. You have to taste of the old wine, and then you'll be able to identify when God is giving you new revelation. You cannot move on to new revelation until you've mastered the revelation of this house. You, don't, you can't build your own treasury until you have tasted of the treasury of this house. And then it will help you with everything. I can assure you that. Matthew 13 is old and new treasure. And the neat thing about this is David had filled the treasury that not only provided for the building of the temple, but it filled the treasury for future generations as well. They didn't have to use it all. Friends, we got treasury you're still not able to eat from. You won't be able to use it all. Master what you're getting and I promise God will give you more. What's Deuteronomy 29, 29? got to read it. I didn't hand it out? No, it's okay. I'll All right. It. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of his law. The, See, we, yeah, please. Please help me. No, go ahead. The things that are revealed to us, the things that we store away for the future generations, the things that we put into the treasuries of God's house will be held and owned by our children forever. When we are getting revelation, we're not just getting it for ourselves. When we are digging up and mining, when we are plundering the enemy and taking supernatural plunder from them, we are storing it up for our children. Every revelation that I am getting from the Lord, it's a secret given to me, but not just me. It's to further my children's revelation. And they will use it in the future. Hey, who's got Proverbs 25 too? It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Oh, come on, man. It is God's glory to conceal something that we might find it. Saints, David found things that were concealed. Things that were guarded. Things that men did not want to give up. And he went and took it and it belongs to his sons. Listen, he provided it as part of the building materials. I would have thought it would have ended up on the walls, but it didn't. They preserved it as a memorial, much like Joshua taking stones out of the Jordan River to remind his sons and grandsons that they can go take their own treasure too. Brother Linton, pick up in verse 2 for me. Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, and the chiefs chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. And all the men of Israel came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. Let's talk timing and then we'll talk composition. The seventh month is the completion of all things. It's the end of the matter. It's the teleos. It's the parousia, the culmination of the ages. In the seventh month, it begins with Yom Teruah, the blowing of a shofar. It moves to Yom Kippur, the atonement of the nation of Israel. And then it goes to Sukkot, where Israel can then 
atone for the rest of the world. That's the point. And who is there? All the elders. Somebody say all. All. All the heads. Say all. All. All the chiefs. Say all. All. All the men. Say all. All. That's all Israel. The temple is a picture of all Israel being saved, as Romans eleven twenty six says. Amen. All Israel. And if their rejection meant life for you, what will their salvation be except resurrection from the dead? I don't know. When you have something that is mortal or temporal that is expanded into something that is glorious, maybe we'll pick up in verse 4 and see how this begins to work out for us. All the elders of Israel had arrived. The Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark, the ark and the tent of meeting. Whoa, 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 whoa. What was that? <laughs> they brought up the ark and what? The tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting. Oh, okay. Keep reading, Lindsay. If you didn't know it, the tent of meeting is the tabernacle of Moses. Yeah. And all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests who were Levites carried them up. Hey, they got it right this time. They learned from David. The Levites carried up the ark and the tent of meeting. You guys ready for this? Yes. You're going to want to buckle up. Let's have a serious discussion about the tent of meeting and the ark. Let's hand out a few passages. Who wants to read? Rob, you're going to get 1 Kings 8, 4 through 5. Paul, you're going to get 1 Chronicles 23, 32. JJ, you get 2 Chronicles 24, verse 6. Ibrahim, 2 Chronicles 29, 3 through 6. Caleb, Psalm 74, verse 7. Assad, you're going to get Ezekiel 37, verse 26 through 27. Nicrosalus, Hebrews 13, 9 through 10. And Tisdale, get Revelation 15, 5 through 6. In your notes, write tabernacle and the ark now you've been waiting an hour and 45 minutes for this part Amen. you're going to want to listen up first kings 8 4-5 and they brought up the ark of the lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it the priests and levites carried them up and king solomon and the entire assembly of israel that had gathered about him before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and cattle they could not be reported or counted. Oh, come on now. He had the priest. He had the Levites. He brought up the ark the right way, and we didn't have any casualties this time. Praise, Praise God. God for that. Yeah. Did you catch in verse 4 that it said, the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting? Yeah. Yeah. You remember that the ark had been brought to Jerusalem? Yeah. That the tent and the bronze altar that we were talking about was still in another location, and Solomon went to go visit it? And they grab both of these things with all of their articles and all of their items and they're heading up somewhere. Why? Why would they do that? Why do you need that old nasty tent? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) To answer that question, you're going to need to consider the extent to which the tabernacle and the temple remain related to each other throughout the Bible. Because you haven't heard this, I promise. Who had 1 Chronicles 23, 31? 31 32. 32. And so the Levites carried out their responsibilities for the tent of meeting, for the holy place, and under their brothers, the descendants of Aaron, for the service 
of the temple of the Lord. Why are the tent of meeting and the temple spoken of synonymously? They're serving at the tent of meeting for the service of the temple of the Lord. Well, let's just let that build for a minute. <laughs> Who has Second Chronicles 24, 6? Therefore the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, Why haven't you required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax imposed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and by the assembly of Israel for the tent of the testimony? Now in Jehoiada's time... The temple is complete. Mm -hmm. There's a temple there, and they're taking a tax. But what is that tax for? That tax is referred to for the tent of testimony. Now, why would they be taking a tax for the tabernacle while the temple is there? Mm. Let's see this further in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 3. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I pause. Open the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. Okay. Hey, keep going. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side, Man. and said, Listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord. Second time, temple of the Lord. Keep going. The God of your ancestors, remove all defilements from the sanctuary. Our parents were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsake Him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned uh, their backs on Him. Man, I am so thankful for our translators and the wonderful things they have done for us. The word dwelling place is Mishkan. It's explicitly the word for tabernacle. During this time period, the temple has not only been built... It's been around long enough to fall into disrepair, and Hezekiah is putting it back together. The tabernacle is referred to as completely synonymous with the temple that was confirmed twice in the passage. We are talking about the temple. We're talking about the temple, the sanctuary, the temple, and the tabernacle. You're beginning to see that they didn't view them as separate? Who has Psalm 74? Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking... Oh, you guys aren't reading carefully enough, because I know that's how you think about us. <laughs> the temple is standing, but the tax was existent since the tabernacle. Yeah. The temple is standing, but it was the parents who turned away during the days of the tabernacle. Well, then you're going to have to deal with something. What does Psalm 74 verse 7 say? They set your sanctuary on fire. You want to guess what the word dwelling place is? Mishkan, tabernacle. They burned your sanctuary, your your temple. They defiled the tabernacle of your name. Man, this is getting confusing. These poor writers, they can't keep the two buildings separate. What does Ezekiel say? Ezekiel 37, verse 26. By the way, Ezekiel's talking about a future time in Ezekiel's time. So in Ezekiel's time, he's pointing to a time frame that's in the future to him. And what does it say? Okay, so we got it. We know Ezekiel 37 is about what God will do for Israel. 
But what does he say coming next? He's going to put a sanctuary. In Hebrew, this word is a mikdash, and it's always referred to as the temple, the permanent temple. But what's verse 27 say? Dwelling place. He says, I will put my mikdash there forever, my temple, and also my mishkan will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. These two things are spoken of synonym, some, sorry, synonymously in the future as lasting forever. Come on. What's Hebrews 13 say? Now, before we read it, I know you guys, I mean, you're fantastic scholars and great kids. The Elder Testament is just so unreliable because Hebrews is nonspecific. And that wasn't moving enough. We, we, we need to just look and see what it says in a New Testament passage, and that will settle it for us, right? I mean, the New Testament settles everything for us. Well, what's it say? Hebrews 13, 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. Pause. <laughs> Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. Almost like somebody would tell you to, what to believe prior to actually reading the text for yourself. Don't be carried away by it. Listen to what the text says. Please, go on. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial food. Hey, we're speaking about an age of grace here. Not some dispensation long in the past. Keep going. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle will have no right to Come on, man. Jesus Christ has given us the ability to eat at something that they have no rights to. And yet we have read over, including ourselves, for many years. We have an altar from which those who minister... Presently, while the temple is still standing, during the days of the apostles, who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Saints, when he's describing the blessing that we have, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we have something that those who are currently ministering in a standing temple, tabernacle, temple, tabernacle, we have something that is greater than that. This is not some homiletic about days long ago. He's describing the present day events, and he says they're ministering in a tabernacle. What are we to make of all of this? (laughs) I'm so glad that you asked that question. (laughs) There's an original design, and the design gets expanded, but you never disregard what came first. God doesn't discard it. He only grows it. And what is the last book in our Bible? Maybe that will make it clear for us. Who had Revelation 15 in verse 5? After this, I looked, and in in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle. I'm sorry, what? Maybe you should read that again. Enunciate, get the words through the beard. Do you mean to tell me when Moses looked into the heavens, he saw a tabernacle? And when David looked into the heavens, he saw a temple? And throughout the Bible, the tabernacle and the temple are spoken of synonymously right up to the 15th chapter of Revelation? 
There's a solution for this. What seems to be an error of conflating the two separate buildings and just not being able to keep them straight has a very simple, straightforward solution. And if we understood it, we might understand the resurrection of our bodies. We might understand the renovation of the earth. We might understand God's plan. Would you like to understand it? We have a slide for you. On this slide, you see the Holy of Holies in Moses' tabernacle. In Moses' tabernacle, it's 10 cubits by 10 cubits. If you would like to hunt that down, look in Exodus 25 through 40 and pay careful attention to Exodus 26. Now, when the ark was moved, anytime the ark was moved, you had to use the skins of the tabernacle to shield it. They're called the shielding curtain. Nobody's allowed to just touch it. I know in our pictures they're carrying it, but they're carrying it with a skin around it. You can find that in Numbers 4, 4 through 6. Now, would you like to see Solomon's, tab- temp- <laughs> Solomon's temple again? Yes. Let's look at that next. If these wings are each five cubits, that makes those two middle wings ten cubits when put together. That's an interesting distance, isn't it? Yes. Rather than answer the question for you right away, maybe we should read to you some of Paul's language about the resurrection of the dead and see if you begin to discern it. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, so Nolan, take 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 55, and wow, such pressure in here. Abimbola. Why don't you take 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. I'm going to interrupt you all regularly to draw your attention to the wording. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen... I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. I'm sorry, the perishable must do what? Clothe itself. That doesn't sound like one goes away and another shows up, does it? Clothing. Clothing doesn't require you to cease for it to exist. Where does clothing go? Oh, it's something that you put on. Keep going, brother. And the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed... Has been what? Clothed. Oh my goodness, death has been what? Oh, okay, keep going. Where, oh death, is your victory? Where, oh death, is your sting? Maybe that was an isolated passage. Maybe 
Maybe that was some kind of scriptural aberration. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building... I'm sorry, what is a tent? Huh. Why would Paul be talking about our bodies like the tabernacle? Let's see if it becomes clear. Start again. I'm sorry, a what from God? A temporary building. I'm sorry, a temporary tent, a tabernacle, and a building. Kind of like Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple. Let's keep going. What do you get clothed with? You don't just go away. You're not discarded. You don't cease to be. You actually are changed to be even more glorious than you used to be. Huh. Keep going. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent... Oh, did you say tabernacle? Maybe what? What is verse 5? Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now you can tell something's there. I can see it on Marlon's face. He's, I'm looking at you very seriously, Pastor. (laughs) So we have a slide for you. Did you know... That the Holy of Holies in Moses' tabernacle fits perfectly inside of the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. The exact dimensions fit under the wings of the cherubim. And you cannot move the ark without moving those skins as well. How did Paul have the insight that he had into the resurrection of the dead? Because he saw a tent come into a permanent building. He saw something that was perishable swallowed by something imperishable. He saw something with skin put on something with gold, glory, and paneling. And this is why the writers always speak about it as the same building. God never discards what he is invested in. He transforms it into something more glorious. It's almost like he wanted you to understand your destiny. You know, I think we should read Revelation 15 one more time. Knowing what we know now. After this, I looked, and in heaven, the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. When you hear this, you need to know something. In the heavens, there was always a tent and a tabernacle, the completed total design. 
the, the tent tabernacle swallowed by the, by the temple. But on earth, you would need the progression of revelation to understand our actual destiny. You are designed by God and inhabited by his spirit to put on something that is immortal. God's name dwelt in the tent, but was more fully realized with more bread of his presence, more relationship to the 70 burning candlesticks, more of the reality of God in the temple. One did not replace the other. The first was swallowed by the second. The first came the natural and then came the spiritual, Corinthians 15 says. Now, I'd give you $100 if you can find me a scholar in a thousand that understands that. But God sees fit to invest this treasure in you. And now you're going to have to decide what you do with it. But in Corinthians 15, the language is the mortal clothes itself with the immortal. In 2 Corinthians 5, we are clothed with a heavenly dwelling. In both chapters, the temporal is swallowed up by the permanent. They knew this from studying their Tanakh. So much so that when Paul's writing about it, he says, you ask what kind of body? How stupid. I'm like, um, Shaul, I don't understand. God had displayed this in the nation's history in a way that the Israelites knew and understood and didn't feel like they needed to explain. (laughs) This is why the terms are synonymous throughout the Bible. Now, there is a scholar who will try to tell you that the entire tent went inside of the temple. It doesn't fit. The entire tent did not go. The holiness of God did go. The heavenly throne and the earthly footstool would now be housed in one place. It's the complete picture. It's the head connected to Jesus, and you are the body, and it is on earth. Forever changing things. Come on, that's a good revelation, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I always thought they just took the artifacts out of the tabernacle and put it into the temple. It means something totally different, that the tabernacle was placed inside The Holy of Holies of the tabernacle was placed inside of the temple. Man, nothing old is discarded. Nothing old is disregarded. In fact, it just inherits a permanent dwelling place, just like us. If you have his presence inside of you right now, it's like you're walking around in Moses' tabernacle. But there's a day coming when what is mortal with you will be swallowed up by something that is immortal and came from God. This is the entire subject matter of John 14, and people don't understand it. But understanding the Tanakh will put you on good footing in the Newer Testament. Amen. Do you feel like you're learning something? Yes. Then we'll finish strong. Now, I know this is a goal we all want to achieve. We all want to be clothed with the imperishable, correct? Yes. Yeah. As we move forward into the chapter, you're going to see how we are clothed with the imperishable. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 6. And King Solomon and the entire, the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. Man, they had built the temple. They brought the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle inside of the temple, but the process wasn't completed. They had to sacrifice before everything was done. 
For us to be clothed with the imperishable, if we want to accomplish that goal, it requires us to sacrifice on a scale that is unmeasured. We are coming to a time in history where the imperishable will swallow up the perishable. Where Jesus will return at Sukkot and blow the trumpet of God and the dead will be raised up and receive their imperishable bodies. But you know what happens before we get there? We have to sacrifice on an unmeasurable scale, To get there as a church, we have to sacrifice on an immeasurable scale. Chris, Rob, uh, Ray, sacrifice on an immeasurable scale? How long, O Lord? Before you come and avenge our blood. This is Revelation 6. Not until the full number of your brothers has come in. Do you know in the Bible what a sheep is? You. If you want to see the mortal swallowed up by the immortal, then many of us will have to give our lives in this pursuit. You cannot come into the kingdom without going through the brazen altar. Do you see why discipleship's important? If yes. you can't give up your Saturday afternoon to help somebody move, how on earth will you give up your life to see the glory of God revealed on earth? Brother okay. Linton, yeah. read 7 through 9 for me. I'm going to interrupt you as we go. We'll start with verse 7. The priest then brought up the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. We're going to keep moving, but we're going to string together a few shadows and types, and there's something for us to gain here. Remember that this is his throne, where he's seated in the heavens, and his feet are upon the earth. Keep going. They've merged. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and covered the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends, extending from the ark, could be seen from in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside of the holy place. They are still there today. Listen, this is a little note that would be so easy to read over. They are still there today today during Ezra's time. Listen, the ark is never seen again after the Babylonian captivity. Everything is destroyed. All hell has broken loose because of sin and disobedience. And almost nothing is left. And yet somehow the poles are still there to this day. They recreate this. They're tasked by the Lord. They have a job to do. We're in Chronicles tonight. This paints a kind of picture for us. And I'm going to go ahead and say it's a sowed. But after the physical structure that was meant to teach us a lesson passed away, you could no longer see the ark itself, but you could see it being carried. That is much like us. It's analogous to who we are today. You may not see a glorified body. You may not see a physical temple, but you can see when a man is carrying the presence of God. Listen, it is our job, regardless of what destruction, what difficulties, what sacrifice is required, we carry that name. It has been preserved through you and I, and we will pay that cost together. Brother Linton, pick up in verse 10 for us. There was nothing in the cart except the two tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. I want you to hear something. The jar of manna, no longer to be found. Aaron's staff that budded could not be found any longer. It wasn't there. I don't know what happened. Maybe Joshua ran off with it. (laughs) But the law, it will never pass away. 
Many things have been lost through the years. Aaron's staff, the golden jar. When we grow in scale, trying to better picture what's in the heavens, we can't ever lose the old standard. The problem of our day is that we've been more interested in growing in scale than we have clinging to the old standard. And so not only do you not see the ark in these buildings, you can't even see the poles somebody would carry it on. I want to remind you my favorite verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things He revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that they may follow all the words of the law. The law will never pass away. Knowledge, this was common knowledge, what we're teaching you at some points in history, and it has been lost, and we're having to rediscover it. May it never be lost in your lives. You have to pass on what you have been given. Let's pick up in verse 11. The priest then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves, regardless of the divisions. Look, regarding, regardless of where they stood, regardless of who was first, regardless of who had the most prominence, they all consecrated themselves. They didn't wait for the leaders or the pastors to go first. Everybody consecrated themselves together. Man, the glory of God is about to shine. The presence of the cloud is about to fill the temple. But before that, what is required is that everyone consecrate themselves regardless of their divisions. Regardless of who's first, who's last, everybody does it together as one family. Let's pick up in verse 12. Read down to... 14. 14. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jonathan, and their sons and relatives, stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests. How many? 120. The trumpeteers and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices praise to the Lord and saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Yeah. And the name of the Lord was filled with a cloud. And the priest could not perform the service Woo. because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. Come, Come on. on now. We have an incredible result. We have an amazing temple. We told you how we were going to see this happen though. We started with a sacrifice that required an innumerable amount but it was going to produce something. It was going to produce men that were consecrated and would inherit this. After we looked at that, they were consecrated no matter their division, no matter their station. Listen to me. It doesn't matter what your family banner is in this house. A multitude that cannot be counted of sacrifice and consecration on your part will be required. Do you notice that they were positioned on the east side? Saints, this is symbology that should remind you of the garden. Back when man was dwelling with God, we were in a position where they are near his presence. They're not just anywhere they see fit. They're not hanging out over by the bronze altar. They're exactly in God's presence where he's called them to be. More than that, there was 120 of them exactly in the specific spot where they were supposed to be. Where do you remember that number from? There's 120 in the upper room. Linton got it. Listen, 
there was a very specific place. He told them to wait in Jerusalem. There was 120 of them. And then what happened? Men had the presence of God dwelling them, just like in the garden. God began to restore things. It was initiating what we were always called to be. And you see this happening inside the priesthood. Now, as this is happening, they don't all just run off their separate ways alone. They sing together. They worship together in unison with one voice. Think about the day of Pentecost. Even the critics, we all hear them in our own language declaring the glories of in unison with one voice. Saints, the result that is listed where the glory of the Lord fills the temple, where the glory of the Lord fills us and we begin to reflect what we will become. The path to that is through sacrifice that is not limited, that is without limit, that you do not measure, that you do not mete out based upon how you feel this week. It's with consecration that does not distinguish between family banners, between stations, between whether you're old or young or you've been born again a long time or not. And it comes through men who know their position, like at Pentecost, like the east side of the temple, who understand where they should be and are willing like the 120 to pray until they see it happen. Then they stand in unity and things begin to physically change on the earth just like in Acts. Saints, you want to see the walls rattle. You want to see miraculous signs. You want to see the gospel break out. Well, the Tanakh lays out a path to success for us. We want to give you a few closing scriptures to meditate on in light of that. Ephesians 2, 22. What bold man is going to get it? Rob, get it. First Peter two five. JJ. Ephesians two, verse twenty two. And in him you too are being built together. Why what? Are being built. You are right now the holy of holies of the tabernacle of Moses. But with every righteous action with every serious disciple, with every bit of unity that we experience in the body, we are beginning to build Solomon's temple. It will swallow up Moses' holy of holies. Read it again. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Well, I thought he lives in me already. Not like he will live yeah. in you when you join with the brothers in the common task. Yes. Got First Peter two five. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ, through Jesus Christ. Right now, you are living stones. You are living stones, and through your sacrifices. Through everything, through your revelations that you're storing into the treasuries of God for your children, through the unity growing in this house, through getting rid of offenses that you may have, through getting rid of everything that limits you from entering into the presence of God. Doing that, you are being built. You are being built and you are seeing a greater increasing glory in this house, aren't you? Yes. Are you seeing an increasing greater glory being built? Yes. What we are seeing is that right now we are being built into a permanent structure. Look, I know there have been some difficult times. I've been away, but I'm not far from you. 
If a stone will not be dressed in white, then it has to be removed. It has to be. It actually will end up removing itself. That's what happens when there's a cancerous mold that is growing because the entire temple is at stake. And we look around, we go, man, that's such a great sacrifice. It hurts. It does hurt. It hurts my feelings. I didn't get into ministry and these pastors didn't get into ministry so that we could see people walk away from vision. What we want is to build the house of God, but it cannot be built on the bitterness of offense and nastiness. The day that they saw the temple filled, they killed innumerable animals, innumerable sacrifice. What I'm trying to tell you is, of course, it's a bloody process. Of course, it's difficult. Because to get the dwelling of God on earth requires it to be difficult. This is what causes the character of Christ to be formed in you. You are up to the task. You are able to make spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And what starts in you will radiate to your family. And what your family is perfecting will radiate to the others. And we will rise together with the body of Christ on earth to become the dwelling of God on earth. His throne that is in heaven but now present in your heart will be fully realized in his people on the earth. That is what the Bible is actually about. So saints, we want to pray with you. Between yesterday, where we heard a phenomenal word that directed us in how we are going to stand firm. Actual practicality, how we walk this out. We also implored our brothers, our sisters, those around us, to search their walls and assume that you're missing something, that we're going to take a double take together. We have zero interest in shortcutting this process. We are not looking to hear about how they saw the presence of God move so greatly. What we want is to walk through the actual steps. That's not done in a singular evening. To muster the great sacrifice that was done there. To consecrate your lives. We are expecting that in days from now, in the weeks from now, God's glory will so fill this house because we have done what is required to enter into his presence. We don't want to settle for cheap parlor tricks where we feel a measure of the presence of God but continue in the same path that we have always gone down. We want to see the fullness of his kingdom realized in your life. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And as we do, we're not praying and then going to settle everything this evening. We're praying as an oath, as a commitment, as a man who is determined and set his face like Clint. I know what God requires of me. And I'm going to carry it out with diligence because his work is worth it. In three seconds, we're going to stand to our feet. But I want you all to look up here. I didn't plan this, but it is what has happened. What do you see? You do not see teachers and students. You see fathers and sons. That's the only way that the kingdom is built. Some of us are biologically related, and all of us up here are related by the blood of the covenant. And that is thicker than the water of the womb. That's how we build. Somebody recently said, well, they're my teachers, but not my fathers. Well, then you don't belong in this house. Okay? And I'm praying that that change. 
But I want you to understand something. God is building on the earth. He's intentional about his design. And we have to get in it appropriately. Stand to your feet.